Welcome to this edition of Calling Dibs. I'm your host, Kirsten Appelt, Research Director with UBC Decision Insights for Business and Society, or Dibs for short. Today, we're calling Dibs on Isabel Andresen, a Behavioral Insights Consultant. We're extremely fortunate to have Izzy on the podcast because she has such diverse experiences as a BI consultant. She's worked with the UK government as well as the Behavioral Insights team. She's also worked with the BC Behavioral Insights Group, the City of Vancouver, and WorkSafe BC, to name a few of her British Columbian clients. So that's a pretty hard BI pedigree to top. And for me personally, I always come away from a chat with Izzy with new ideas and a calm, collected feeling about even some tricky projects. And that's an in-demand feeling in 2020. So I'm excited to talk to Izzy today. So Izzy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kirsten. What a lovely introduction. (laughs) So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your BI role? Yeah, of course. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm a behavioral insights consultant and I'm actually based in the UK. Um, I previously lived in Vancouver, um, but moved back over to the UK a couple of years ago. Um, And I work as a senior policy advisor with the behavioral insights group, um, which I'm sure you're all aware of now. Um, They're based within the BC government. Um, I also have kind of various other um, bits of work going on for WorkSafe BC, um, City of Vancouver, etc. Um, but prior to my consultancy work, I um, worked for the UK's Behavioural Insights team um, who developed the EAST framework and Mindspace and have done lots of work in this area. Um, so a lot of my work for the team there was running RCTs to test the impact of different um, policy interventions, mainly relating to local government and health. And what led you to a career using Behavioural Insights? Yeah, good question. Um, so I started off um, after studying psychology, I went into the UK civil service and um, I remember being at a training session there and I came across um, Sam Haynes, um, who worked for the Behavioural Insights team, and he was presenting on um, a study on loft insulation and how to kind of encourage people to insulate their their lofts or attics. Um, and I thought, wow, that's so cool. It kind of combine psychology, which I love, and understanding human behavior with research methods. Um, It's really evidence-based, and it's so kind of real world. You can really have an impact. Um, And I think that's kind of that sort of combination of all those um, passions and also, you know, having had experience in government and really sort of enjoying um, having an impact through the government process um, made me kind of think this is an area that I'd I'd love to work in. That's a perfect illustration of the different components of behavioral insights. So I love how you brought all three of those together. Uh, So kind of relatedly, do you have a a favorite behavioral insight or favorite behavioral insights case study? Um, Yeah, I think my favorite one was um, uh, a project done by the behavioral insights team and um, Public Health England in the UK. And this was a few years ago now, but um, the aim of the project was to reduce unnecessary prescriptions of antibiotics, um, which is obviously a really important topic um, because we are becoming resistant to antibiotics. Um, And what they did was they just sent um, a simple letter to GPs who were high prescribers of antibiotics. And in that letter, they just provided some very simple feedback 
to tell the GPs that the majority of GPs in their local area prescribed fewer antibiotics per head than they did. So just a very simple peer comparison um, and also some tips of how they could potentially um, reduce their prescribing. Uh, And it was really successful in um, reducing unnecessary prescriptions. And I guess one of the reasons that I like that example so much is because um, it's a simple and very cheap intervention for a very complex um, project problem, which often, um, well, it costs kind of governments a huge amount of money, kind of thinking about how to tackle it. There's lots of kind of um, routes that you could go down, whether it be um, influencing the behavior of vets or clinicians or the public. Um, And this was just really kind of breaking a complex problem down into something very simple um, and cheap, which had a very powerful impact. That's a great example of how just small changes can have huge impacts. And I think that's one of the magical things about behavioral insights. So thinking a bit about the way we do behavioral insights, we've talked about the ride model and how that's a way to trace the steps of a BI project. So I'm curious because you and I have both done a number of projects using the ride model. In your experience, which step has the steepest learning curve? Which one's the hardest to master? So I think for me, the hardest one um, to master is probably Innovate because in Innovate, you're designing an intervention, um, but you're also, if you're running an RCT, um, you're designing a trial. And um, if you've not had experience of working on a trial before, um, there is quite a lot to learn. And so I think in those kind of um, those first few trials that I ran, there was a lot to get my head around in terms of um, kind of questions I should be asking and things I should be looking out for, how to conduct randomization, thinking about what the outcome measures were, how you can kind of connect your, make sure that you're sort of um, can connect your intervention to your outcome measures. There's just a lot to think about. Um, So I think that's a real learning curve, um, but equally it often comes by doing. So you really need to um, run a few trials, get them under your belt, and then it becomes kind of second nature and quite intuitive as to um, things to look out for. Absolutely. And I think that speaks to part of how we designed our certificate program so that they are getting that experience with the capstone project. Because like you said, learning by doing is really the best way to learn how to do research design. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I'm sure that'll be so valuable for everyone on the certificate program. And thinking about the ride model, which steps do you find vary the most between projects? Like which steps each time you do a new project, you know, it's going to be a little bit different. So I think, I mean, all of the steps tend to vary quite a lot um, between different projects. Um, But I guess the research phase, um, there can be a huge amount of variation. Um, So for some projects, it can be extremely time intensive. Um, If you're conducting lots of interviews or doing lots of um, observations or site visits and literature reviews, um, and that can take a lot of time and and sort of, you know, you need some specialized skills in order to um, to do that uh, that work. Um, but then sometimes kind of for other projects, it, it can either not be possible to conduct um, intensive research um, because of maybe the population or the context that you're working within, um, or if it's kind of 
a very um, simple project. Sometimes you've got really good kind of evidence um, within the literature to draw on. So you need to do, you don't need to do as much um, of the time intensive research. Um, but yeah, I'd say it's a kind of extremely valuable um, stage of um, the ride model and something that kind of can get um, overlooked um, in, in some areas of government work. And it's something that I know we all value a huge amount, um, but it can lead to a lot of um, variation with projects, I'd say. Yeah, I can think of a few projects where we've had really intensive interview sessions. So I definitely agree that that's one where sometimes you do it in a couple of weeks and sometimes it takes six months or even longer. So what do you think are some common pitfalls? I know you and I have been on some ex some projects that have been huge successes and some that, that have kind of petered out unexpectedly. So what do you think are some of the things that make a project or that derail a project? So I think for me, one thing that often deal, derails a project is um, not having the necessary buy-in from the client um, or whoever you're kind of running the behavioral insights project for. Um, and often there could be kind of initial interest uh, or enthusiasm and um, and then kind of either as you sort of seek more senior approval or as time goes on, um, that, could, that can sometimes wane a little bit. Um, and I think without that um, client buy-in, it can be quite a struggle to kind of push a project forward. Um, because ultimately it's a really collaborative process and um, you really need them to kind of often provide the data, provide the kind of platform for introducing the intervention. They play such a crucial role as well as, of, as, well as kind of, you know, signing off a project and allowing it to move forward um, that that can, yeah, that's definitely been a stumbling block in the past. Um, another pro uh, pitfall, I'd say, is uh, data sometimes, that it can be um, either difficult to uh, collect data, so um, maybe there's not an existing data source, um, and that obviously can be problematic, or if there is an existing data source, um, which is normally kind of you know, a project that we'd um, want to go for, it can be difficult to access it and kind of transfer it and making sure that you're not um, obtaining any personal identifiable data. Um, so I think, yeah, data can definitely be um, a, little, a barrier along the way. I totally agree both about um, the necess necessity of having good stakeholder buy-in and the importance of data. And I think that really speaks to the importance of the uh, project scoping and problem discovery phase when you start to find those, or hopefully you have the right conversations to find out those kinds of pitfalls before you get too far. Um, so any any thoughts about the project scoping phase and how that works well? What what makes it be a success? Yeah, so the scoping phase, um, so that's when you're kind of really trying to work out whether a project is kind of worth undertaking. Um, and I think what works well then is firstly to kind of set up a meeting with the client or whoever you're working with. Um, and really try to kind of understand um, the problem that they're grappling with. And sometimes it's um, quite a broad issue that they haven't necessarily kind of um, pinned down to a specific behavior. Um, and sometimes they already know kind of exactly what the issue is, what the behavior is, and where they want to intervene. Um, and I think, you know, 
if they've done more thinking around that, that can be really helpful um, because then you can easily make an assessment as to whether um, the behaviour and the idea that they're kind of coming up with is um, is amenable to behavioural insights approaches. Um, and it's also in the scoping phase, I think one thing that's really important is speaking to people who are um, involved in the in data, the data side of things, um, because as I mentioned, that can be a pitfall and a stumbling block sometimes. So if you can have those conversations really early and find out what data is available and whether you'll be able to kind of access it and whether it does actually kind of track the behavior that you want it to, um, then that can kind of really help you to make an assessment as to whether the project is worth pursuing and going on to the research phase. Absolutely. And I think that points to something that I've been thinking about, which is sometimes when we're in the scoping phase and we don't know a client well, we're hesitant to ask some questions because we think they're stupid questions. But then often those are the the really important questions. So we're like, you know, you might feel like it would be stupid to say, well, do you record this data? Because, well, of course it should be recorded. But then sometimes you find out later on that it's recorded, but it's recorded in a separate database that doesn't talk to the other database. So it's really important to, to actually ask those questions, even if they feel like um, obvious questions. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Some of the simplest questions are the most important. Um, and as you go kind of through working on trials, um, you sort of realize which ones. It's things that it's so easy to miss, but are just so crucial, like you said, whether there's data available, um, as well as just kind of assessing um, intuitively how interested the client is um, to pursue the project and the effort that they're prepared to put in. Absolutely. I can think of a few projects where, you know, I think maybe we didn't realize that we were so much more keen than the client. And so sometimes your own enthusiasm um, seems like kind of overshadows the fact that maybe the client isn't isn't in the same place as you. Yes, we've definitely learned the hard way <laughs> on that one. <laughs> um, so moving on to the next phase and the phase that you mentioned being so variable, user research. Um, we've talked about and we've experienced together some projects that have had intensive user research and then others that have relied more on secondary research. So could you talk a bit about how you make those decisions on when you're going to do user research and when you think secondary research will be sufficient? Yeah, so, I mean, secondary research is obviously um, so valuable. And I think kind of, you know, that normally comes in tandem with user research. Um, or if you're not doing user research, then um, it's no normally kind of necessary to do that um, either way. Um, I think it often, I mean, it depends on what the problem is and how complex it is and what populations you're um, working with. I mean, if it's kind of um, a sort of very routine process or service that you already know a huge amount about, or there's been lots of prior research on, um, or maybe kind of, you know, behavioral insights approaches already applied, and you can draw on that kind of existing body of evidence, um, then it can not always be necessary to do a huge amount of user research. Um, but I do think, you know, the majority of projects, it is really important to do it. Um, and often it is when you're working um, 
in an area which you yourself kind of firstly might not be wholly familiar with. Um, but also when there hasn't been, you don't know the kind of reasons people are behaving in the way that they are. Um, and user research really helps to kind of understand people's um, feelings and perceptions, um, what the behavioural barriers are, what the motivators are, really get to those kind of um, points which will help you to inform uh, it to create a really good well-informed intervention um, because I think you know it's easy to kind of jump jump the gun and and sort of just look at a trial that's been done before and think oh we could kind of replicate that but actually um, you know if you don't know the context you don't know whether it's appropriate to do that you don't know what kind of the subpopulations are, what issues they're grappling with, what their experience of a service is, because often um, a service can be designed in a, in a kind of, you know, very um, logical way. But in practice, things happen totally differently or, you know, you don't get to kind of observe or find out about the interaction between the service user and the staff, which is so critical in the design of the intervention. Um, but I think, yeah, it, a lot of it depends on the complexity of the behaviour um, and the, the populations and, and, yeah, what you're actually focusing on in the project. Yeah, I think you really captured well that secondary research can set the, set the background for you. It can really catch you up to speed on what's been done elsewhere. The limitation is it's rarely specific to your project, your specific context. And so what user research can help with is colouring in what is happening with this specific population in this specific context, as opposed to in other other places this has been looked at. Yeah, I think that's really nicely put. And so if we were to say the same thing about user research, what do you think are the limitations of user research? Well, user research uh, is quite time intensive. So, I mean, it depends what resources you've got available to you. Um, but I think that's kind of a one limitation that people come across a lot. Um, and I think, I guess, kind of in terms of like actually um, doing the user research, it's easy to fall into to pitfalls, whether that be um, using leading questions or complicated questions. And, and so sort of really sort of prepping and planning for user research, I think, is really important and being very clear about what um, what your aim is, what you really want to get out of the research um, in advance of conducting it is crucial um, so that it's as kind of productive as possible. Um, I think kind of, you know, one thing that can be challenging with user research is um, getting access to uh, the individuals that you really want to speak to. Um, you know, in government, uh, sometimes that can, that can be hard, um, but, you know, it's kind of worth persevering and trying to, um, to speak to as many sort of a, a range of individuals working or accessing a service or process. I really like what you brought up about talking about the importance of reaching different um, individuals. And though, though it can be tricky, it's worthwhile. It reminds me of a project we worked on where there, the topic was sensitive. And so we wanted to be able to talk to people in a way that was um, anonymous. And so that made it really tricky to recruit the people, uh, but we figured out a way to do it. And then I think we got such valuable data about how, how that process worked. So there are innovative ways to do interviews where you can reach more people and reach them anonymously. Yeah, I would totally agree. And, and one thing that occurred to me as you were saying that is that um, it's important to make people feel relaxed um, and 
if you're coming from, I don't know, central government and you're going to more of a local service, I think kind of building that rapport with people, maybe making people feel relaxed and not like you're there to kind of um, look over their shoulder and make sure they're doing their job okay is really important. Absolutely. It's, it takes practice to be able to set the stage for an interview well, I find. Um, so thinking about these interviews and how if you do them correctly, they, they actually produce kind of a mountain of data. And if you're doing that again and again over different individuals, you get a whole mountain range of data. So how do you approach processing interview data? Well, interesting you ask that because um, more recently, as things have kind of been moving online, um, I've taken slightly a different approach. Um, so for um, a recent round of interviews, we used Miro, which is a, an online platform. Um, and we kind of, um, a lot of it is about identifying themes um, within the interviews. And obviously you have kind of lots of notes and sometimes um, audio recordings, but really about kind of thinking about what is it that you want to find out, um, which is often like where are the behavioral barriers, kind of what, what's causing frictions or issues for people, um, and then what's working well. What are people's motivations for doing something? Um, and also, I think it can be really useful to, to kind of capture ideas that um, they've got, the people that you're interviewing, ideas that they've got for interventions. Um, or kind of improvements or what would kind of, you know, an ideal situation look like for them. Um, and so often we kind of identify um, the insights along those sorts of themes. Um, and I've done it before in various different ways, whether it's kind of using post-it notes all around um, the room and just kind of looking through my notes and sort of, yeah, color coding different themes and insights um, or building up a kind of complicated Excel file um, and, and more recently, yeah, using Miro, which I found really helpful to be able to kind of um, work together with other colleagues um, so that we could all input our insights at the same time. Um, and then kind of once you've created a big board of insights, um, trying to sort of remove the ones which are overlapping, pulling out um, key themes that you've identified um, and sort of identifying the sort of priority insights that will help to inform your intervention design. Absolutely. And one thing that kind of came to me as you were talking about that and how we often do probe motivations and barriers, but then at the same time as behavioral scientists, we know that sometimes we're not accurate at reporting our own motivations and barriers. So this may be a tricky question, but how do you reconcile those two ideas and how do you tackle that in, in the work? So I think it's really important to use user research um, alongside other kind of insights, um, whether that's looking at the kind of hard, hard data, um, using the behavioral uh, science literature to see what's been done before and actually think about, you know, we know humans are very um, kind of unpredictable in their behavior and we're subject to various biases. Um, you know, what, what people are telling us can we then apply a behavioral insights lens and really think about what are the biases at play? Maybe what people are kind of, you know, saying they're motivated by, are there other things that, that we've missed? Um, and I think it's really important to kind of, yeah, combine your behavioral insights expertise um, and other 
um, kind of insights for whether it be from um, the client that you're working with and their experience of, of a process or a service um, and the existing literature with the user research to kind of give a, a holistic um, view of it all and that can really help you to kind of come up with a, a valuable intervention. Yeah, I love that you described it as a holistic view. I think that makes a lot of sense. So if you only do user research or you only look at the BI background of research, you're only getting one side of the coin. But by doing both of those things, you're getting hopefully the full picture. Yeah, absolutely. So having thought about, you know, some of these things we've talked about, the the ways to be successful, the common pitfalls, do you have any messages or advice for our BI practitioners in training? Um, I just say that it's, um, for me, it's been such an interesting, um, but also fun area of work. Um, so to kind of go out and enjoy it um, and don't be kind of too intimidated by all the literature that's out there and all the um, the methods and the terminology um, and the kind of, yeah, the, the skills that, that you've got to develop because it does come kind of naturally and with practice um, and that you can read all the books um, that are available. But actually uh, what I found most helpful is kind of having a sort of platform of knowledge, but then really building that with um, applied and practical experience. Um, but yeah, over, overall, I'd just say kind of it's, it's a fascinating field to um, get kind of interested in um, and there's so many opportunities to apply it you suddenly realize that you know everything is about behavior all government policy the majority of it is about behavior um, and how we can kind of um, change it um, and help people uh, so kind of use it where, wherever you can even if your job's not specifically related to behavioral insights. I think those are really great points and echo a lot of what I feel too about how it's it's really a fun line of work to get to play around with uh, these misperceptions and things that, you know, we can tweak and make better and make a difference in people's lives. Um, and also, like you said, how it, it is really through practice, like this stuff only makes so much sense on paper. It's when you actually get working with it that it all kind of comes together. So any last thoughts, questions I should have asked and didn't? No, I think you covered it all great. Um, yeah, that was really enjoyable to be on the podcast. And um, I'm so glad that that everyone's kind of uh, enjoying the Behavioral Insights Certificate. And just thank you for having me here. Well, thank you. It's been delightful to talk with you as always. And I hope everyone listening has an even greater appreciation for the skill and, and the um, how enjoyable BI is and how it it all comes together to pull, pull a project from start to finish. So thanks to Izzy and thanks for listening to Calling Dibs. Thanks, Kiss.